Well, today is um, Pentecost. Pentecost. When we remember God fulfilling his promise to send his spirit. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. We remember those who have served our country and given their lives for us. So it's appropriate that we remember Jesus who served his church and gave his life for us. But I was trying to think of a title of, um, for the message this morning and I was thinking, well, maybe I could call it Paul's prayer petition. But then Preston shared last Sunday about precious promises. So I thought, well, maybe I should call it praying the precious promises. Um, but let's go. Paul was perhaps the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Think about it. He tirelessly proclaimed the gospel through much suffering all over the Roman Empire and he never took a single plane flight. Everything was walking and some were by ships. He walked all over the empire. Lifted with a cramp on an airplane. He was not cramped on an airplane, but he was cramped in other ways, believe me. Um, he was also one of our faith's greatest theologians, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write major portions of the New Testament. As an example, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians. This letter, you're familiar with it, but if you were to read it again for the first time, it would be breathtaking. To read Ephesians. I want you to read Ephesians. We're going to talk about Ephesians today. He lived in Ephesians for over two years. Preaching both in the synagogue and also in a public hall. You know, wherever he would gather people. Um, this is where the seven sons of Sceva were overpowered by a demon-possessed man. This is where sorcerers who practiced magic arts burned their books in a great bonfire the books were valued, it says, 50,000 pieces of silver, which today they say is five and a half billion dollars. Can you imagine somebody preaching at the Civic Center, and as a result, all the people who practice magic arts bring their <laughs> books valued over five million dollars and set them on fire? That's Ephesians. This is where false worshipers had gathered to protest saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours standing. Can you hear it? Boom. Boom. Like almost an entire football game, they stood and cheered, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That was the Ephesians, four hours and in. It was here that handkerchiefs and aprons which had touched Paul, were taken to the sick to heal them and to cast out demons. Oh yeah, here's a handkerchief that's touched my arm. You take it and lay it on that sick person and they'll recover. Can you imagine the buzz in Ephesus? Can you imagine what it was like? Um, then after being away for several years, Paul wrote this letter, which remains without parallel, continuing 2,000 years later to 
reveal Jesus as the one for whom all things exist and God's eternal purpose in saving his chosen so that they can live for God and his glory. But then at the end of, of Ephesians 6, after instructing them to put on the full armor of God and carefully describing their offensive and defensive weaponry, Paul asked them to engage with the overarching weapon of prayer and enter the battle on his behalf. Asking these same people for which he had just prayed to now pray for him. And what does he ask of them? In Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. He says, uh, praying at all times in the spirit. With all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. And also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth. Boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, Jason, when we sang, I will not be silent, I will testify of your grace. I was thinking that that author of that song is thinking about Paul when he said this. Why do you think Paul was the world's greatest evangelist? Would it happen, have anything to do with God answering the prayer of these people for him? <laughs> they, God calls us to be fruitful and then calls us to pray that we might recognize his part of our being fruitful. The world's greatest evangelist who suffered as much if not more than any other servant of God asked for words to be given to him to boldly proclaim the gospel as he ought and not be limited by his chains. Okay, the picture is he's in prison. He's chained and he asks for boldness to speak the gospel as he ought. He doesn't want the gospel to be chained like he's chained. Is the gospel chained in our lives? <laughs> I hope not. This is Paul's prayer request. He doesn't say he wants to get out of prison. He wants the gospel to get out of prison. It's it's breathtaking. When he was in prison and they sang hymns at midnight and the earthquake came and broke down the prison walls, it wasn't so that he could get out of prison. It was so that the jailer would be saved and this whole family. I'm, I'm, this message is for me all today. We're preparing to go to Peru for the first time in four years. And I'm thinking, Lord, I want to be where I need to be. This is Paul's prayer request. This is how he prayed according to the will of God. This was God's plan for Paul. And God answers his prayer, don't you think? Wouldn't you agree? I ask you to pray for this for our Peru team the same way. And for our church, this is the prayer of God's plan for us. Paul humbled himself to ask for prayer at the end of his letter. But the letter also records his prayers for the Ephesians. Listen to how he begins. This is Ephesians 1. I'm going to start at verse 15. For this reason, 
Now, he hasn't been there in a while, right? He was there for two years. He's left. Now he's writing them back a letter. You can read through Acts 17, uh, 19 and 20 and some 18 and talks about him calling for the elders and they meet with him and such. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul thanks God for their faith and their love. Then ask the Father and the Son to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. He's asking them to help them. He's asking God to help them grasp the fullness, I believe, of the amazing truths that he just wrote in Ephesians 2 through 14. And, and let's read that together. Imagine you just reading Ephesians 2 through 14 and then Paul saying, may the God the Father and the Son, Jesus, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, <coughs> as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's what he just wrote. And then he said, he's going to pray that they have a spirit of wisdom and understanding to receive this. In how many ways did Paul say that God has claimed these believers for himself? And if you believe in Jesus, how many ways has Paul said that God has claimed you for himself? Do you think the Ephesians realized all of this? Paul states that the saints are chosen. They are predestined. He says predestined twice. He says they're adopted as sons. He says they're accepted in the beloved. He says that they are redeemed through his blood. They're forgiven. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit who is a deposit of the guarantee of our inheritance. It's a guarantee. God blesses all those who trust in him, for to know God is the most glorious relationship and the highest reality for one's whole identity and purpose and fulfillment. These are some of the most reassuring truths that God has given to his church. They supernaturally reveal his plan and love for his children, 
that they receive by faith in their hearts and their lives and their minds. After these wonderful words, Paul is going on to share what else he prayed for these believers to know. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and then he identifies three powerful truths of life in Christ for them to possess. So Jason, as I was singing these singing these songs, I was thinking, well, do I possess that truth in my life? The first truth, what is the hope to which he has called you? What is the hope to which he has called you? Do you know this hope? You can know this hope. Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You will, you will know this. And third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? You can and you will know and receive and possess these three things. Hope, inheritance, power. That's why Paul was praying for them. Hope, inheritance, and power. And somehow the songs Jason Pick kind of touched on all these things. Let's consider these things. Paul wants believers to see clearly these realities with the eyes of the heart and in a profound way to receive them by faith. God gives these blessings to every believer. But rather than thinking of hope, inheritance, and power in a general way, Paul wants believers to see specifically that it is the hope of his calling. It is the riches of his glorious inheritance. And it is the immeasurable greatness of his power. I normally think of the hope, inheritance, and power. But now this prayer is leading me to think, oh, well, it's all his. <laughs> it's his. And it's a promise to me that I will have these things in my life. It's all God's doing. It's his calling and that he is the one who plans and calls. It's his inheritance in the sense that he owns everything and gives it to whoever he chooses. And it's his power in the sense that he possesses all power and uses it mightily to work all things for the good of every believer. Let's consider them one by one. The hope to which he has called you. Every believer in Jesus Christ is called by God to possess a special kind of hope. A special kind, a confident expectation secured by the faithfulness of God that God will deliver everything he's promised. That's why Preston's message from last time, I just kept thinking, well, these are promises, you know, and hope says God's going to do this. God's going to do this. God's going to do this. This hope is not like the world's hope, which is only a desire for a future thing of which is uncertain to obtain. As when people say, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope it happens. That's not what God means at all. For Christians, there is absolutely no uncertainty in hope in Christ. There needs to be no uncertainty in hope in Christ. Hope in him is certain. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 adds this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Peter calls it a living hope. Now, what could that mean? What is a living hope? Well, sometimes it's good to think in terms of opposites. What would be a dead hope? Well, a dead hope would be barren, fruitless, unproductive. But a living hope must be then fertile and fruitful and productive. <coughs> living hope never dies. Living hope is hope with power to produce the results God wants in our lives. Living hope reveals a strong confidence in God to fulfill all his promises. Living hope sounds a lot like living faith, doesn't it? Certainly it does. Hope relates directly to faith, and while they do overlap, there are some, they do remain distinct. Faith secures life for today, and hope secures life for the future. Faith acts now, while hope anticipates faith to act in situations yet to come. Romans ten seventeen tells us, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we can be sure that hope, like faith, is strengthened by the word of God. Think about it. How does your hope get strengthened? By reading the promises of God. By reading his acts of kindness and mercy towards us. Hope comes from trusting that God's precious promises are always true, found, made, and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We are called to this living hope. Well, what kind of hope are you called to? I'm called to a living hope in Christ. As we grow to trust all that Christ has done for us to deliver us from judgment and to provide for us, God will confirm in our minds and in our hearts that God is working all things together for good. Even when bad things happen, God will remind us that he is going to use this for good. This hope focuses our attention to cling to Jesus Christ and live according to his promises. For if our future is not secured by hope in God, then what happens? We become anxious, we become worried, we become doubtful, we become tossed about by all of the affairs of life and not hopeful. We will live in fear or greed or, or strive to control all things ourselves. It is an, un, an unceasing task. We will only think about our own wants, ourselves and our problems. These pursuits will keep us from obeying God and loving others. But the hope to which Jesus calls believers allow them to show self-sacrificial love to others. As we trust God to take care of us and are less occupied of thinking only of ourselves, we are better able to minister to others because we are confident that God will take care of us. Confident. When God satisfies us so deeply that we're free to love other people, then others will see him more clearly as his glory is put on display. And that's what we want to happen. We want to display the glory of God. Romans fifteen thirteen says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the hope of his calling. The second one is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I mean, that's just a mouthful. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. An inheritance is what? It's money, it's property, it's titled will to an heir upon the death of the previous owner. How can this be true when related <coughs> to God? Well, all things will be given to Christ. He will inherit all creation. 
and then share it with the saints. It's breathtaking to truly stop and consider what the promise is. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints is the sum total of all God has promised in salvation. And the list just continues as you read the scripture. What has God promised? In just a few words, it's the life we will experience with Jesus in heaven. It is our portion and heritage when all God's promises are completely fulfilled and expressed in reality. Again, we look to Peter in 1 Peter 1, and we're going to read a couple more verses, 3 for 5. Same verse start at the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow. You know, again, this verse explains God's great mercy and living hope by describing our inheritance like this. Our inheritance in Christ is imperishable. What we have in Christ will never cease. It'll never be lost. It'll never decay through any sort of corruption. This immediately contrasts with everything on earth that is constantly decaying, rusting, and falling apart. But the inheritance of heaven is not affected by sin, nor by the curse placed on the natural world because of sin. Those who have been born again are born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Our inheritance will not be lost. Second, our inheritance is undefiled. It is unspoiled. What we receive in Christ is free from anything that would deform, dishonor, or degrade. Nothing on earth is perfect. Even the most beautiful things of this world are somehow flawed. For if we look closely enough and we inspect it, we'll always find some imperfection. But Christ is fully perfect. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, it says in Romans, I mean Hebrews 7, 26. And our inheritance is like him, holy, blameless, exalted, and pure. No earthly corruption can ever stain the inheritance God offers. It will be spotless. Our inheritance in Christ is unfading. What we have in Christ is an enduring possession. As creatures of a world that is doomed to pass away, all of our experiences with this world, it is hard for us to imagine colors that never fade, excitement that never flags, or value that never depreciates. But the riches of its glorious inheritance for us is not of this world. Its intensity will never diminish as God makes all things new. And then fourthly, our inheritance in Christ is reserved for each heir. What we have in Christ is being kept safe in heaven for us. The crown of glory waiting for you has your name on it. Although we enjoy God's blessings here on earth as his children, our true inheritance, our true home is waiting for us in heaven. Like Abraham, we are looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews eleven ten, And Paul adds in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages, the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Revelation 21.4 gives another beautiful description of our inheritance. He says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Amen. Amen. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. (laughs) For the old order of things has passed away. Everything will be new. The bejeweled city, New Jerusalem, will be our home. God will dwell with man. From the throne, from his throne, the river of life will flow. From the healing tree of life, 12 kinds of fruit will be grow, will grow. The eternal light of the Lamb will fill the city and shine upon all its heirs, and there will be no night. That's, that's what this inheritance is. Then the third piece of his prayer. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards believers. Have you experienced that? The immeasurable greatness of his power towards believers. I would dare say all of you have experienced it. What is this? How great is God's power towards believers? Well, according to this phrase, it's so great it cannot be measured. His power not only rules over wind and waves, over disease and infirmity, over the life of every creature, over sun and stars. The power of God towards us now is so great that to make sure his readers understand, Paul provides five examples of this immeasurable greatness of his power. He says, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above our rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If this is an inspired passage that God wants us to know, we could live the rest of our lives studying it. To fully comprehend what he's telling us. So let's look at these five examples of the greatness of God's power towards believers. In Christ when he raised him from the dead. What a great place to start. Who has power over death? Anybody? Jesus. And it's not like he raised Lazarus from the dead. Because Lazarus was going to die again, right? This was raised. This is, this is why the word resurrection to me is a different word than raised. I mean, to, resurrection means raised to eternal life. The glory here is Christ Jesus broke the power of death for all who come to him. Death, our enemy, is defeated. For Paul, the death of Christ was the death of death. Oh yes, believers will die, but the sting is removed as because death for the believer becomes the pathway to paradise. This is where the world really struggles with Christian faith. Because you won't believe this unless God has opened your heart to receive it. This is the power of God towards us. 
His power raises us from spiritual deadness to new life and faith. His power opens blind's eyes, conquers rebellion, and creates a new heart that loves God and people. And his power guards us from the rule of sin and brings us through until the end in persevering faith. This is God's resurrection power for believers to be raised for the glory of Christ. The second example. When he seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. The authority and power that installed Jesus at God's right hand. Has also appointed a place for us to be there with him. I want you to believe that. I want you to press in by faith and believe that when Paul gives the placing Jesus at the right hand in heavenly places, that he's got a place for us beside him. Ephesians 2, 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul teaches us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead and put him eternally in God's presence will put and keep you there too. What kind of power can do that? Thirdly, when he exalted Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He speaks of another age coming. We know from Ephesians 6.12 that these rulers and authorities include all the devils and demons of the universe. So the power towards you now is a devil defeating power. Paul said in Colossians 2.15 that at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So when Jesus rose from the dead, God exalted him in triumph over all the hosts of hell. They are defeated foes. There are still battles of faith that remain to be fought. But the power of God for us now, the power of God for us now in these battles is power over all foes. God has given power over every foe. Fourthly, when he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So there's two things. All things are under his feet. All things. Name something that God's included in all things. All history, all humans, all demons, all disease, disabilities, all nature, all weather, all industry, businesses, healthcare, sports, inventions, media, military might, governments, presidents, kings, religions, universities, solar systems, galaxies, molecules, atoms, and 10,000 more things that we never thought of. All things put under his feet. Nothing will escape his lordship. There's no other way out. All roads lead to Christ. <laughs> kind of a funny way to think about it. But either in judgment or in salvation, all roads lead to Christ. We also see that God gave him his head over all things to the church. Now, this is an important thing for us to think about. Uh, they all are important. This is especially important. God gave him as head over all things to the church, which means in his capacity as head over all things. That Christ is the one. That's been given to the church. 
You know, if you're recruiting a certain person to take a certain role in your position, organization, and you happen to recruit the person who had authority over everything to be on your team, what would that do to your team? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the head of our church. That's the head. In his capacity as head over all things, Christ has been given to the church. The same one who has universal power is the one in charge of the church. The church serves as the body of the one with boundless dominion. Is that an encouraging thought? The one you serve as the head has boundless dominion over everything. And you serve that one. You don't serve some lesser entity. You serve the living God. With all power and all authority and all wisdom, Jesus serves and leads us as our head and our savior and our king and our friend. In other words, this is God's power toward you. That Christ would be the head of the church. And then the last piece of this, finally, God shows us his power toward us when he made the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me say that again. God shows his power towards us when he makes the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You ever thought Fills all, let's work backwards. Fills all in all. What? Fills all in all. What would that be? He, he takes up every, why do you think the heavens are so big? To display the glory of God. And Christ fills it all. But then working backwards through this, he says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So it's the fullness of Christ that fills this. And then he says, it's his body. The fullness of Christ is in his body. Wherever Christ is, we are. Another way to think of this is where God rules, we will rule. God intends for his power towards us to fill the universe with the power of his crucified and risen son. And though it will take your breath away, God intends to make us, the church, all those who believe in him, the means of that fullness, the substance of that fullness. The church is the substance of the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. You with me? Where Jesus rules, we will rule. He created humankind in the beginning to inhabit a beautiful creation and to subdue it and to enjoy it and to reflect his glory to it. And this is what he intends to do through the new humanity called the church. He will fill all creation with all the fullness of his glory. Through his body. All of you who trust and believe in Jesus will be that fullness, his body, the fullness of him, he fills all in all. This is the power of God at work in you. 
Now let me repeat something. Paul was sharing an inspired prayer for the Ephesians. He probably wasn't aware of every hardship, every sickness, every wayward son, every need to which ask God's provision in their lives. But he was aware of the greater need of every believer to believe and comprehend the fullness of all God intends to work out in their lives. And while these paragraphs of prayer do teach us a great deal, they don't think they teach us a great deal. They are Paul's prayer for these people, for them to grasp the big picture of what God is doing in their lives. He says, you're on the earth, but don't think that's the it, baby. I want you to see the big picture of what God's doing. You've heard the old story about the construction workers. Two guys with a little shovel were out there digging a, a line. And one of the guys was barely getting it done. And he was, it was gravel and he was sticking in there. It was hard going. He was just exhausted. And he says, why are we doing this? And the other guy was happy as a lark, just, you know, just doing it. And he says, this is great. We're going to be finished soon. And uh, somebody came in and said, what's happening? He says, well, they just got me digging this trench in, uh, in this rocky soil. And it's really hard. And he asked the other guy, well, what's he doing? He says, I'm building the world's largest skyscraper. It's just, I just got to have this trench across and then they can lay that and then phew, there it goes. The difference was one saw the big picture and one would not lift their head up to see what was going on. He, Paul wanted them to, he prayed this prayer that they would grasp the big picture of what God was doing. In this prayer, God, Paul gives thanks to God for saving these believers. And then by supernatural revelation, that's the only way you can describe it. Supernatural revelation, Paul describes for them the glorious kingdom of light. He was lifting their eyes up to see God at work in their lives. These were the people who had seen the healing handkerchiefs. The same people who'd seen the healing aprons passed around. These were the people who had seen the demons cast out when they touched the, the handkerchief. These were the people who saw the $5 billion book burning bonfire. They saw this, these things. They saw the religious riots downtown about the temple. And yet when Paul prayed for them, this is what he chose to pray for them. There are more places in this letter and in other letter that Paul wrote that Paul breaks out in prayer for the saints. He prayed for God to do more than just heal their brokenness and give them good health. As important as good health and healing the brokenness is. He prayed for their spiritual vitality and their calling to hope. He prayed for a greater understanding of their inheritance in God and God's power at work to accomplish it. Why should they have fears? Why should the Ephesians fear for today or doubts for the future when God has prepared this glorious inheritance for them? That's what Paul's saying. And so, church, why should we? Why should we be given to despair when this is the living hope to which we've been called? 
How could we worry that we don't have provision or power to resist sin or minister to others or serve the purposes of God when he's got immeasurable greatness of his, the riches of immeasurable greatness of his power? I mean, it's hard to fit all the title into that power. Paul's prayer aims to keep us walking with the spirit and keep our heads up. Overflowing with faith, buoyed up by joy and certain with living hope. Tell me. Would your life changed if God answered Paul's prayer for you? How would your life change if God answers Paul's prayer in you? How would it change? Would you think differently? Would you react differently? Would you act differently? Would you emote differently? Would you pray differently? What would change? What would you pursue? What would bring you joy? If God answered Paul's prayer in you. I want to find out. I truly want to find out. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we want to know how we might serve you and honor you and love you if we truly knew the hope to which you called us. We truly knew the living hope to which you have called us. Lord, we want to know how we serve and honor and love you and other people if we truly identified with the riches of your glorious inheritance provided to the saints. And Lord, we want to know that we would serve and honor and love you and others more if we truly appreciated the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us when we believe. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Lord, this, this, uh, this prayer, you, you've given Paul such words, inspired words, words of faith, words of revelation, words, Lord, that are not found any other place that speak of a greatness to which we long for, to speak of an inheritance and a hope and a power that is yours that you give to those who trust in you. We ask you to change our lives, Lord, today. And Lord, it's not necessarily a memorial just for those who have sacrificed, given their lives for our country. Lord, it's a memorial for each one of us. It's the day of Pentecost where the Spirit comes and does mighty works. And Jesus, we ask you to do and we ask God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of wisdom and revelation to convince us of these truths. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. So just, just take a moment and think about how you might respond 
to what God has pressed upon your heart. While Jason's getting ready, uh, you ask, what, what, what would I do? Yeah. Ephesians 5.14 Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. <laughs> For you're dead to the knowledge of God. Rise from the dead, and Christ will give you life. That's what I would do. Amen. Rise from the dead. Yeah. I thought the same thing, except I thought I would not be so easily distracted by the things of the world. There's always more. <laughs> There's always deeper. Yeah. Higher. Higher. <laughs> Wider. Higher. <laughs> I, I want more. I think what we need to keep in mind, though, is the church is not infallible. It's the word that's invaluable. And the church is only the true church as long as it's faithful to the word. And so many of them are not these days. That's why compromise destroys everything. You can't compromise with the word of God because that's how it's true.